Well, good morning, church family. So glad to see all of you here today, and welcome to those of you who are watching, watching on and worshiping with us online. Uh, a few quick things before we begin uh, the sermon today on unity. Uh, number one is that today is a very special day in the life of our church, especially for our student ministry. It's what we call, in children's ministry, it's what we call Promotion Sunday. And uh, if you're a parent of a sixth grader, we would love to let you know and invite you to come back to church later this afternoon, 3 p.m. We're going to have a little orientation in the community room to talk about ways that we would love for your sixth grader to be involved with us in our youth ministry. And then from four to six, youth kicks off a brand new school year. We have uh, a strong man with a strong walk with the Lord coming to be our guest speaker. His name is Carl the Ox Cox. I'm pretty sure this dude can like bench press a car or something like that. And he's going to talk about um, Jesus in uh, some very creative ways, like bending rebar over his head and crushing cans with his bare hands and stuff like that. It's going to be amazing. So uh, the other thing that we would love to let you know about is um, after our second service lets out, we are going to have an opportunity. Uh, if you're brand new to our church, it's called uh, Get to Know Us. And it's just going to be a chance for you to come meet our pastors, get to know a little bit more about our church. We realize y'all are here in the first service right now. You might not be coming back over, but if you would want to, we would love to have you. And we would love to treat you to uh, lunch on us um, as you come and get to know us. And now before we begin our work, time in the Word today, uh, there's a lot going on in our world. We could uh, take the full service and pray for everything that's going on. There's two things in particular that I would love for us as a church to just take a moment to pray for. And that's uh, the devastation that's happened in Haiti and uh, the situation going on in Afghanistan. So will you join me right now as we begin this time in uh, the Word with just a moment of prayer for these two nations. Lord, we uh, would be quick to admit that we don't have a lot of answers and that we have to turn to you in times of desperation. Right now, we lift up the people of Haiti and Afghanistan, and we pray that you would take hold of them and help them walk through this time uh, that would be fearful and uh, tumultuous. We ask that you would protect them under your wing and help them feel the comfort and peace that can only come from your Holy Spirit in times of trouble. So many people have um, called these two places their home and have been, been displaced because of these separate events. And we ask that you would remind them, O oh Lord, that their true home is in heaven with you. Give those who believe in you the courage to stand strong in their faith and to be a strong witness for you. And also be with those who do not yet believe in you and help them to see the peace in your followers and allow the Holy Spirit to stir in their hearts as they witness this. We pray that you would provide need and help we pray for our armed forces as they serve and protect, and for our elected officials who might make uh, difficult decisions um, on a daily basis. We pray that you would um, allow them to turn to you for their guidance and wisdom in how they make decisions. We pray for the refugees and those who've lost family members and have been displaced from their homes. We ask that you would be a strong tower and draw near to them. And we remember the words that are found from the prophet Isaiah that says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Lord, uphold these two nations, Haiti and Afghanistan, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are new to our church, my name is Brian. Um, I work with our student ministry, if you haven't guessed. And um, our lead teaching pastor, David Beatty, has gone on sabbatical. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, we are going to be talking about this, this topic of unity. 
And it's no surprise to anyone today to say that we are living in very interesting and divisive times and that division seems more rampant now than ever. Pastor Andrew pointed out in the conclusion of his sermon series on Jonah chapter uh, four last week that the top three headlines of the last year were the pandemic, the election, and police-related riots and tensions uh, that have arisen over those matters. Now, none of those were divisive subjects at all, were they? Of course they were. That's what made them headlines uh, in the news. Uh, That's what um, people were being divided over. People were either pro-masks or anti-masks or for the lockdowns or against them or for Trump or for Biden or for the police or against them. And I fear one of the things that might even seem to be lost on this next generation, myself included, is that sometimes we miss the ability to sit down and talk with somebody who has opposite views from ourselves. As Christians, we are called to be seasoned with grace in all matters, as Colossians chapter 4 verse 6 says, and I'm afraid that that posture is no longer defining Christianity. If we were to read God's word, it is absolutely abundantly clear that God passionately calls his church to be united in Christ and be united with one another. And Christian unity is the result of a shared faith in Christ and his gospel. And for the believer in today's world, that should be at the forefront of our minds. In order for us to be united in the mission of God and his church or to be united with one another, we must first be united in this vertical relationship that you see perhaps depicted on this uh, image behind us. It's made up of people, and there's obviously the shape of a cross, and we're going to talk a little bit about both elements of this. But to make sure that we are on the same page, unity can be defined as the quality or state of not being multiple, or said another way, the state of being joined as a whole. Unity is not just the desire of Christ for his people, but it's the expectation. God expects his followers to put down our differences and to be united in him. It's so important, in fact, that our church's denomination, the EPC, has a motto that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. We are called to be united around the things that are salvation issues, especially those things that we should not um, argue and fight over, the things that provide salvation for his people. We are called to unite around those. There are things that also might not be essentials, but are non-essentials, and we're called to give liberty in those areas and not be so divided in those matters. A few years ago, our elders drafted, you've probably heard this if you've been with our church for some time, our elders drafted uh, a vision statement of what they prayerfully wished our church to look like by the year 2025. It was a document that it was intended to provide um, a common goal for our church body to seek after along with our pursuit of Christ. And on the heels of articulating what um, God would want our church to look like in the future, we entered into a capital campaign and it seemed as though the Lord had us all on a ship and we were all in a unified direction and we all had an oar and we're rowing in sync with one another. The building was built and open and it was a beautiful time in the life of our church. And then the pandemic happened. Closures came, mask mandates were implemented, and life came screeching to a halt, and everyone hopped on his or her own lifeboat, and we all scattered. And this wasn't just our church, but it was in all facets of life. God's intent is not for us to operate in isolation or to captain our own vessels using this mentality of, well, you do you and I'll just do me. But Psalm 133 verse 1 
gives us a depiction on what unity should and could look like. It says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So if God's intent for us is to be on a common ship, steering in a unified direction, the question needs to be asked, how do we get back on course? Well, unity starts with being united in Christ. Theological and even personal debates and division is nothing new for us today. As a matter of fact, it goes all the way back uh, to as early as Genesis chapter 4, when Cain was angry at God and thinking that his offering was not nearly as good as his brother's, his brother Abel's, and it caused jealousy and envy, so much so that sin overcame him and he took his own brother's life. In Luke chapter 9, the disciples were arguing and fighting over who was going to be the greatest disciple among Jesus' twelve. Pride ruled in their hearts, and here they are being the very hands and feet of Jesus, arguing over who was going to be the greatest among them. The list in Scripture could go on and on and on. The solution to a collective group of Christians who share different perspectives on matters like theology or hot topics that create division within the capital C church about subjects like homosexuality or abortion or women's roles within the church or even things that are a little more worldly, if you will, like whether or not to be vaccinated or what politician to vote for or even really trivial matters like what school we cheer for. Like how on earth could people vote or people pull for the patriots? I just don't understand it. The solution is not to eradicate our differences, but instead to see them in light of Jesus. When, look at, when, we, when looking at unity, we should first turn our attention to the vertical elements of the cross, our relationship between Christ and ourselves. Because Jesus changed everything when he showed up on the scene over 2,000 years ago. As a part of his omniscience, which is a big churchy word that we use for his all-knowingness, um, he had this ability, Christ had the ability to foresee the differences that would divide his church. And so he asked God to give great unity that could and should exist among his people. And so right before he was um, handed over to the Roman soldiers and tried and, and persecuted and hung on a cross for us, Jesus was praying for first himself and then for his disciples, and then he prayed for you and me. He prayed for the future of the church because he knew how important unity was. We see these words in, found in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me and I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. If you could use a single word to define what this prayer was all about, it would be the word unity. He's not praying for conformity, but instead for unity. But how often are we united? Think about it for a second. Like when we go out uh, as a maybe husband and wife, you go out with the, with the whole family, everybody hops in the minivan. It's like, hey, we're going to go out and get food tonight. Where are you going to go? 
We can't even be united on where we want to go eat together, right? Like, we, it causes division. Now, I don't feel like eating there. I'm not feeling that tonight. Well, I was wanting that. Okay, well, we, we can't seem to find unity even the most, on the most trivial matters. We sure can let our opinions on things interfere with our unity with one another. When I was in seminary, I was talking with one of my good friends, and he was lamenting over the fact that his church had just split and people had left the church over what color carpet they chose, chose to use when they were renovating their sanctuary. Or what about when people throw in the towel when a church decides to spend more money on this rather than that? Or don't even get me started on worship wars when people say, I just didn't like that song. They should have played this one, but they didn't do that one. It sure can be easy to let our vanity get in the way of our unity. The gospel message is incomplete without this picture of a unified church. There is no plan B. And that's why unity within the body of Christ is of utmost importance and something that each of us should strive for. And it reminds me of a quote that Billy Graham once said. He said, churchgoers are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep the flame aglow. And when they separate, they die out. God has told us what he cares about most. He spelled out for us the things that cause him grief, the things that make him weep. Yet how often do we disregard the unity that his son gave his life to secure and attack each other over things that are, are irrelevant? Has anyone been on social media lately? How easy it is to get lost in a trail of people firing off at one another over the differences that can divide us. The scenario happens all the time. When we fight with each other and destroy another person's opinion or create division, we are simply spreading our coals and the flame of unity dies out. As much as I want Christians to be unified, just talking about it would be like putting a band-aid on a bullet wound. It's going to maybe create a quick fix, but it's not getting to the heart of the matter. And that's really what we need to do is we need to look at the heart of where we are as it relates to unity. And for that, we turn to the inspired words of the Apostle Paul found in Romans chapter 6. Now, before we get there, it's really important for us to note what was going on culturally at the time. Paul was writing to the church in Rome, hence the name of Romans, and addressing both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, a Gentile was anyone that was not ethnically Jewish. And these would, um, if you were here last week in Andrew's sermon, those would be the other people the Gentiles. Now, the Jewish Christians, having grown up in the Jewish faith, they still held many of their traditions and laws even after accepting Jesus as their Savior. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, were never taught those laws and regulations and traditions, so when they became Christians, they did not do the same, th same things the Jewish Christians did. Now, as you might imagine, there was division among these two groups of, of believers, and division is the opposite of unity. When Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, this is one of the big issues going on at the time, and this is why unity is one of the theme verses, themes that we see sprinkled all throughout the verses found in Romans. And so now we're going to look at Romans 6, verses 5 through 13. Paul says, For if we have been united with him in, uh, united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now let's pause right there for a minute and we're going to unpack a little bit of theology for a second, okay? 
This idea of original sin um, is the idea that we are born separated from God because of the sin that we have inherited through Adam and Eve. Paul, uh, people, excuse me, people are not, um, there's another term that John Calvin used called total depravity. And this, it's the idea that we're not like fully bad, but we're not as good as we could or should be. Because of that, sin is in our nature. I came downstairs yesterday morning um, before uh, time trying to make a little cup of coffee or something like that, enjoying my morning at home. And um, I heard little footsteps walking around in our kitchen. Um, And as I came down the stairs, I instantly heard the bathroom door close. Now, um, I asked uh, one of my two children uh, who was in the bathroom at the time, hey, what are you doing in there? And this person, um, I'm not going to tell you who it is, said uh, that they were using the bathroom. Now, this child of mine never closes the door when he or she has to use the bathroom. So uh, my, you know, radar instantly went up. And um, as they came out of the bathroom, I went in and happened to just step on the trash can lid and popped up. And I saw that there was a plate that the night before had two cupcakes on it. And inside the trash can were also um, a wrapper for the said cupcake. And I said, did you get into the cupcake that was sitting on the counter? And this child of mine lovingly said, no. (laughs) And I was like, huh. It's not that often that we put cupcake trash and bathroom trash cans around here. And so that only goes to say, that we, did, did I have to teach my child how to lie about things like that? Of course not. It's within us. Like our, our natural tendency is to choose bad over good. And so Paul is addressing uh, a part of these matters. And um, what he says in verse six, he says, for those who have accepted Christ as their savior, this old sin-ruled ru- sin self is crucified with Christ that our old tendencies are nailed to the cross when Jesus was, and that we should allow these things, our sin-ruled selves, is crucified with Christ and brought to nothing, as it later says, which is this Greek word, um, katharegal, and it's translated to abolish or to wipe out. So our old selves should be completely wiped out and done away with. Our old selves and our old tendencies should be completely abolished. And he goes on in verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. When Paul says this, he's implying that we are no longer ruled by sin. If we've been set free from sin, we're abolishing sin's rule over us in matters of our heart or character. And this means that qualities within us that create disunity, things like pride, arrogance, anger, divisiveness, should all be abolished or wiped away within us. It doesn't mean that we will never get into an argument or never get mad again. It just means that we should not be ruled by those tendencies. But then it gets even better. He can, Paul continues in verse 8. Now, if we, have been di- if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but he, the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, it's important that we don't miss this. Paul says that we will also live with him and we will never die again. So if we are in Christ, we get to live with him 
in us. And not, not only that, but as we live for God, we will one day live with him in an eternity where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no lying over cupcakes that are being eaten um, against our parents' wishes. There's no divisiveness. I believe that we can eat cupcakes all the time up in heaven. Like, uh, it doesn't say that in scripture, but that, that'd be cool. There's no divisiveness. There's no bullying. And we get to worship the risen king forever. So I ask you two questions. Have you been united with Christ? And has your old self been crucified with Christ? And are you now living for a life in God? Everything from this point on hinges on how you answer that question. And my prayer is that nobody would leave this place today without having said yes to both of those two things. So imagine, I would imagine that most of us have answered yes to that at some point in our lives. Um, in fact, some of you might have tuned me out because you feel like you've heard this so many times. Well, tune back in because Paul has something for us here in verse 11. It says, so that you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The key word here being consider. Now, you're probably thinking that sounds a lot like what Paul's already said in the last six verses. However, something new is added here, and it's this word also as well. It says, also suggests something is being added, something new. So looking at this verse, the key difference between it and the last six is this word consider. Consider holds the idea of fully realizing or believing, or remembering that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. In other words, verses 5 through 10 are about being united with Christ, and verse 11 is about actually putting it into practice and realizing it. It's like Paul is saying, hey, make sure this sinks in, because clearly there were people in Rome who were still fighting with Jews and Gentiles over differences that were dividing them, and he was saying, let this sink in. We are called to be united in Christ. They were like prisoners who had been set free and continued to stay in their jail cells, and the reality of their freedom had not yet set in. Do you truly believe that you are dead to sin and alive in Christ? If so, let that sink in. I'm thinking that in a room this size, there are probably some of you who have gotten really used to this idea of being saved. What I fear is that some of you have been, maybe have been a Christian for so long that when you hear the salvation message, it's no longer good news, it's just old news. Or when you hear about Jesus suffering and dying on the cross, you forget that he suffered and died for you and your place. And you forget that he had gone to the cross, that there would be no hope for a relationship with God nor heaven after we die without Jesus. Sometimes for whatever reason, we just seem to forget how awesome that really is. I think that some of us have heard that Jesus rose from the dead so many times that we've perhaps become desensitized to it. I had an opportunity to go to my, lake, uh, my aunt's lake house yesterday. It's this uh, beautiful home and uh, beautiful view. Uh, I, and as I was coming down the sidewalk from lunch yesterday, I snapped this picture uh, um, of looking down at the dock that's tucked away in this, the house is tucked away in this little cove right out of, off the main channel. And you can just see um, like the, the smell of it for me, the, the, the aroma, the um, feeling that I get when I get there. Um, that never gets old for me. But I would imagine somebody like my aunt who lives there would sometimes get old, uh, get tired of the view, you know, that it would just become something, oh yeah, that's, that's what I wake up to every morning. So around dinner time last night, as we were getting ready to leave, I asked Debbie, I said, does that view ever get old for you? And she said, never. That view never gets old. And for us in Christ, 
that should be the same way for the way that we see the good news of Jesus. It's not just old news. It's good news that should never be old. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 13 continues. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In the last verse, we looked at this word, consider yourselves. And here Paul tells us to present ourselves. And if consider yourselves emphasizes this purpose or the point that we are supposed to realize that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ, present yourself emphasizes that we are to live like we are dead to the rule of sin and to alive, alive to God in Christ. The reality here, though, is that although we are dead to the rule of sin, we're still tempted to sin. And if it helps, maybe you can picture this for a second. Picture sin on a throne as the ruler of your life. And picture sin sitting on a throne. And when you accept Christ, sin gets knocked off the throne and destroyed. And now Jesus sits there as the ruler of your life. However, sin is still trying to tell you what to do and how to live, all the while trying to reign control of the throne. Paul's basically just saying, Jesus, if Jesus is sitting on the throne where sin used to sit, then your life ought to look significantly different now than it used to. Has anybody ever seen a sign before that says under new management? It's, a, it's an interesting marketing tactic. Like, uh, why is it that businesses would throw up a massive sign and paint it on, you know, the massive sign to put it on the side of a building? Well, usually it's because when there's new management, things are done differently. Their business will look different with a different person in charge. So my question for you is, does your life reflect that Jesus is sitting on the throne? It's, is it obvious that you are under new management? When we accept Jesus as our Savior, we become united with him in his death and resurrection, which means that we are dead to the rule of sin and alive to God in Christ. And when we realize what that means, it changes the way that we live. And that's why unity with Christ is of utmost importance. That's why Jesus prayed for it in John chapter 17. That's why Paul tells us how we are called to live our lives. And now that we've spent some time looking at this vertical part of the cross, let's talk just momentarily about the horizontal aspect of it. Unity in the church is a powerful testimony to the world. Real unity is a supernatural work, and it points to a supernatural reason that Jesus lives in us. He literally allows his presence, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within us. So not only are we united with Christ, as Paul was talking about, but we are also united in Christ. We're not just going about our Christian journey and having a walk that's alongside Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but the literal presence of Jesus' Holy Spirit, God incarnate, is, is within us and his, we are his temple to allow it to live within us. So practically, what does it look like for the Spirit of God to be at work so much so within us that we are being united with one another in the body of Christ, in the real world? Let's say that your coworkers at work tomorrow are gathered around in the break room sowing discord about your boss and what a terrible person that he or she is. How are you gonna respond? Our students, I'm going to say the S word from the stage. School starts up tomorrow for many of you. 
let's pretend that you're sitting around the lunch table and some of your friends are talking about what a girl did uh, with her boyfriend at a party or for something along those lines and gossip rumors just start spreading like wildfire. How are you going to respond to those matters? Let's say that your spouse comes home and is stressed out with being overworked on a recent project and says, says something really short and snippy with you. Do you respond by firing back at them and stirring the pot even further? Or let's pretend that um, you're, you, you show up to church on a Sunday and you're just really not liking the worship songs. You know, are, are you, are you going to remember that worship is not about us, it's about our worship to God, an audience of one? What kind of image are we casting to the world around us who is watching our every move when we operate out of a spirit of disunity? Mahatma Gandhi, he picked up on what disunity could look like when he famously said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Thomas Manton, who was an English Puritan clergyman and clerk to the Westminster Assembly, he also famously said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. So what would it look like if River Oaks Community Church was known as a community of believers who were truly united in Christ? Think about the face of somebody you know who's not yet a believer in Jesus. Maybe it's your dad or a sister or a cousin or a best friend or coworker, and they aren't interested in following Jesus. Now imagine with me for a moment that they encounter a church. You invite them to come to church, and for um, praise the Lord, they decide to say yes. And they encounter a church that is so united that they realize that Jesus is who he claimed to be. They don't just hear somebody preaching about the grace and the mercy and the love of and the sacrifices of Christ, but they see models, uh, believers model this love with each other. This opens their eyes, and perhaps when they see a church united in Christ and united with the mission and united with one another, they might just see Jesus for who he truly is. We must keep our eyes on the calling of Christ to be united with him, to be united in him, and realize that we need each other if we're going to pull this off. And we desperately need Christ to pull the veil off of our eyes and to soften our hearts to seek unity in its rawest form. Jesus' final prayer for us before he was crucified was to be united, and that unity is what will show an unbelieving world what Christianity, what Christianity could and should look like. So how do we better pursue unity? Let me suggest one of many prescriptions that the Apostle Paul gives us in, in Scripture. In Colossians chapter 3, he was writing to the church, and he gives us a couple things that we can maybe perhaps put into practice to allow this to be lived out in our lives. Colossians chapter 3 says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive one another. Where do you think Paul got this character list? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, 
bearing with one another. He was looking at Jesus. And he was saying, if you're going to be the church, if you're going to be a follower of me, we have to be united. We have to take off, take off of our old selves the things that cause disunity and put on some things that models Jesus to an unbelieving world. As God's chosen ones, we are called to be united in order to do so. We have to take those things off. And it's almost like we have to realize that our walks with God are community projects. It's not to say that there's not going to be some home repairs that we have to do in our own lives, in our own personal selves, but our walks with the Lord have to be with one another. That's the way that Christ intended for it to be. Living together with one another, united in his son who gave his life for you. Herman Edwards was the colorful and witty fo football coach who was once the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. He famously said this. When it came to his thoughts on teamwork, he said, the players that play for this football team will play for the name on the side of the helmet and not the name on the back of their jersey. So my question for you today is, are you playing for the name on your jersey or for the, de for the, for the team that Christ has assembled and called you into? Church, let's live united in Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, we would be quick to say that there are things within us that are not pleasing to you. There are things in my own life that have been prideful and arrogant and quick to respond in manners that would not please you, O oh Lord. Would you remove these from my life? Would you remove these from us as a church? Would you allow us to put on compassionate hearts? Would you allow us to be kind, humble, meek, and patient, and bearing with one another, sympathetic to the needs of others? Would you allow forgiveness to set in? Father, would you allow us as a church to be so united that the world around us would see something different within us. They would see that we are under new management. We would be united as Christ prayed for us in John 17. Allow that to be true of ourselves individually. Allow that to be true for us as a church. Allow that to be true for Christianity as a whole. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.